Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 105 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Heather Hackman about how small firms can work on diversity. Today's podcast is sponsored by FreshBooks, which is ridiculously easy to use and packed with powerful features. Try it now at freshbooks.com lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists, and it's smart, charming receptionists who are perfect for small firms. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Spotlight Branding. Learn how they use the internet to make all of your law firm marketing and business development more profitable by visiting spotlightbranding.com slash lawyerist. So Sam, we've mentioned in a number of podcasts in the last couple of months that our upcoming TBD conference will be happening in St. Louis at the end of February. And I guess I'm excited to announce today that we will be closing the applications and invitations to that event on Monday, February 6th. So you've got a few days after the release of this podcast to sign up uh, if you're interested in joining us for what promises to be a really interesting conversation about the future of law practice and an opportunity to have lots of really cool conversations with amazing, innovative lawyers from around the country. You didn't, I feel like you didn't sound nearly as excited as I felt during the two days of TBD law. My voice needs more exclamations. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it you got to come to TBD. I mean, we, we put this thing on, we knew what we wanted it to be and how we wanted to do it. And we were hoping that everybody else came along with us and oh my God, it exceeded my wildest expectations. People were gushing about it for weeks and we have, we, we still have this community of people who went to TBD Law last August, and it's it's just really cool and exciting to see how their practices have grown and, and become more profitable and more exciting since then. And I'm looking forward to bringing on uh, some of the our alumni and some new people and bring them together and see what if we can do it again and how exciting it's going to be because it, it really was like this intense, exciting two days of you know, kind of workshopping uh, law practices or practice hacking. And it was, it was awesome. And I can't wait to do it again in February and hopefully again and again and again. Yeah, it's easy for me or us to say, but it was easily the most inspiring and useful legal conference event that I have ever been to. It was, it was amazing. Um, And I don't, take credit for the fact that it was amazing. It was due entirely to us having a really cool group of interesting people in the room. Yeah. Here's the, I mean, here's the thing as, cause I'm doing a lot of the inviting and I know that when I get invited to things, I'm usually just like, oh, spam, 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 um, <laughs> or just delete, 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 because I'm like, eh, but like we, we've only invited, I think total 200 people and we're only trying to get 75 people there. And either you or I, or both of us have specifically looked at every single person's website and tried to find out more information about everyone we've invited because we're really trying to get information about, are they going to get it? Are they going to be the right people to have there? And once we figure out that, yeah, we think they are, and we extend an invitation, it means that we really want that person to be there. So if you have an invitation uh, and you just deleted it, maybe go check your trash folder and check it out again because there really aren't that many of them out there. If you don't have an invitation already, you can still apply on our website at lawyerist.com slash tbdlaw or tbd-law. You can find that link uh, under discuss in the nav menu. Um, I think there's a post on the front page about TBD law or there will be by the time this is up because we'll be announcing the application deadline. And you can apply. And here's what we're looking for um, so that you know what to tell us because we ask you to tell us why you think you'd be a good fit. We're looking for lawyers who think strategically about the future of their law firm as a business and as a professional services company. Um, And we're asking for people who are realistic about the trends shaping the legal profession or are at least curious about those things and know that it's going to take more than same old, same old to survive for the next 5, 10, 15 years. Because 
what we don't want to do is spend our time convincing people why it might be a good idea to go paperless um, or why um, document automation might be a useful thing. Like we're not interested in, in discussing remedial things at TBD Law. We've got a, a website where we do that. So we're looking for people who sort of get the strategic value or the value in thinking strategically and having big ideas about the future of their law practices. So that's what we hope to see. Yeah, or or even just people who are coming to the conversation with some creative ideas for new ways to think about how to engage clients and deliver legal services. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think whether or not you feel like you are a savvy tech person or not is not the point. Nope. The point is we're looking for people who are forward thinking about how um, small firm law practice can be better and different in the future. And I, I guess I could give you some ideas about um, you know, who's been there before that felt like really great fits. We've had um, a woman who built a nonprofit law firm out in Utah, Chantel Argyle. Uh, we have David Colarusso, who is, is able to sit down and build apps and is building one uh, in part with some of the, with some interest in collaboration with some of the people from TBD Law. So is Jason Velez from One Law, uh, which is a personal injury firm, uh, and he's building a network nationwide around that brand. And then we have lawyers who have, you know, ordinary practices that are trying to make them extraordinary. We had, uh, I believe, an immigration lawyer who was, knew that he could build his firm to scale. He just needed to figure out how to bring in the capital to do more advertising. We've got younger, newer lawyers who are trying to build innovative firms. Um, We've got gun lawyers and we have solos and we have um, firms with um, dozens of lawyer, a dozen or so lawyers or more. Um, it's it's been a really interesting group, but everybody is willing to engage with big ideas, and it was so inspiring and exciting because of that. Yeah, and another dynamic of the event is that we aspire over time to make it the most diverse event in law practice. We have some pretty ambitious goals about racial and gender diversity to make sure that the room is full of a variety of voices and perspectives that are representative of the legal profession as a whole. And we're really excited that we continue to make strides. But as you'll hear in today's podcast, there are always lots of challenges in diversity recruiting, and it's a complex topic. Yeah, I'm really excited about today's podcast. I think you'll hear I had a really good time engaging with this and with some hard ideas. And I think uh, you'll find that it's going to resonate with you in at least some ways. I hope it makes you rebel against the ideas at some point, but I hope you'll also listen with an open mind to the whole thing. And I hope you'll find something in here to go, yeah, wow, I hadn't really considered that before. Um, So I think you're probably going to um, go through a series of phases as you listen to this podcast. And I think I'll just shut up now and let Heather take over because it gets really interesting. So here's my conversation with Heather Hackman. My name is Heather Hackman, and I'm the founder and president of Hackman Consulting Group, and we've been an established consulting group since 2005, and we go all over the country and consult in various types of organizations, nonprofits, for-profits, higher ed, P12, um, and certainly, in this case, law firms and um, other legal venues around social justice and equity issues. Um, In particular, my work tends to focus on racial equity and racial justice, but we certainly also address gender and class quite a bit and any other equity or social justice issues that organizations have some questions about. Thank you so much for being with us today. And I first encountered you at a very challenging seminar on class, uh, classism and the law uh, for the Volunteer Lawyers Network, and I was, um, it was great. And, And this would be an interesting I guess I'll relate one of the exercises you had us do, but because I think it was just you can reflect on what, how you might handle it. You you asked the everybody in the room to line up from the highest to the lowest class, and mm-hmm. uh, and you you asked us to talk about it as we did it, and it was it was a really interesting and eye opening experience, and it, it made me realize that I don't see class my class in the same way that. Um, that other people might, and in fact, I'm sort of deeply uncomfortable with the way that other people might see my class. Um, and I'm reflecting on how, like, uh, my friends, my business partner, 
uh, might line themselves up in the room and realizing that that's a really twisted lens through which to view the world. Yeah, you know, that's actually one of the hoped for outcomes of that particular activity. Um, and the way that we frame it is we offer up just two pieces of directions. One is to line up shoulder to shoulder, kind of facing the board or the front of the room based on how you identify with respect to your class. Um, and two, you have to talk to each other or uh, the people around you to make sure that you're, quote unquote, in the right space. Mm-hmm. And typically, one of the outcomes is exactly what you said, that people realize, whoa, I have radically defined class <laughs> in certain ways that my colleagues do not. Uh, and there are substantial differences. But the other piece to take away from that is that with all of those complex uh sometimes complementary, sometimes contradictory definitions of class, we come to understand that there is a very imprecise understanding of class in this country. And then we turn our attention to the system of economic oppression and classism Mm -hmm. and ask why that's so. Why is that? What is the purpose of being so confused and vague about what class actually is in this country. And in many ways, the purpose is to help the bulk of people who are not benefiting from an economic system continue to believe that if they just, quote, unquote, work a little harder or apply themselves a bit more, then they, too, will, quote, unquote, make it. And so um, in a system that is, at least currently, the way that contemporary free market unregulated capitalism is operating, it tends to favor a very small group of people. But how do you get the overwhelming majority of a society to go along with that? You get many of them, not all, but many of them to think that they too have a chance to make it and kind of go from rags to riches or will at least improve their station in life. And you put, you sort of force us all to see ourselves through that lens. And it was kind of a crazy experience. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I've sort of dumped us in the middle of the topic here and that that's maybe not fair. And and you, you also did one thing at that seminar, which um, we we should probably start with um, even if we've already started. Um, So will you ground us in and and kind of explain why, what, what that is and why we're doing it? Yeah, I actually begin every training, every consulting session, every class. When I was a faculty member, I taught for 19 years in higher ed. And I began um, each session with a grounding in. It really just takes a minute. And the purpose of it uh, is to to kind of help people become more present in the space that they're in. And so I ask folks to sit with their feet flat if they're able. Um, if that's not what their body is used to, then just kind of sink their weight into whatever kind of standing, seated, um, kind of inclined position they might be in. So the first move is to kind of sink in. And then the second move is to sit as upright as you are comfortable and able to do. And again, we all have very different bodies, so that will look and sound and feel different for folks. And then we ask people to close their eyes or cast their gaze to a neutral site. And this country is unfortunately full of countless folks who identify as trauma survivors, and maybe they don't identify as that, but that is their experience. And it's just unkind and unskillful to ask those folks to close their eyes in a public space. You either close your eyes or cast your gaze to a neutral site so you're not visually distracted. And then breathe as deeply as you are comfortable and able. And that seems like a fairly benign thing to do, except that in the United States, that too is mediated by issues of class and race. Um, The connections of racism and classism in this country relegate certain communities of people to certain areas where they can live. Those also happen to be the spaces in this country where garbage incinerators are built, where there's water that's not potable, et cetera, et cetera. So even something as seemingly neutral as breathing is actually mediated by race and class. So as we ground in, we begin to bump into the very issues that we typically talk about in these training sessions. So folks breathe as deeply as they're comfortable and able And then just for 60 seconds, focus their full field of attention on the felt sense of air coming in and out of their nose. And our minds will almost instantly wander, and they will do so several times in the one minute. That's okay. Don't get judgy about that. Just notice it and then bring our attention back to the felt sense. And what we're doing is we're building the muscle of attention, if you will. We're we're increasing our capacity to be fully present in the work that we're doing and in the conversations that we're in. So if you want to, feet flat, sit up, eyes closed, breathe deeply. And just for 60 seconds, put your full field of attention on the felt sense of air coming in and out of your nose. And as your mind wanders, notice it and just continue to bring your felt sense, your field of attention back.
Just do the last full inhale. And Thank you. That's uh, that may be a first for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we typically do it for just a minute, but we did mm-hmm. that one for thirty seconds because I assume dead air is probably toxic for you know all audio forms. And so, um, for the listeners, that was just thirty seconds. Uh, but I just encourage people to do it at least. Um, once every day as you head into a meeting and you pick up a phone, even before you send that email, because it certainly will save you a lot more time to, you know, ground in just for 60 seconds than have to send seven different emails to clean up the one email you sent out of frustration or anger, et cetera, et cetera. So if nothing else, it's a time saver. But particular to issues of class and race and other social justice issues, it's just critically important that we learn to be fully present in those conversations such that we can um, engage most fully with each other as we do that work. And we're going to talk about some hard things today. I mean, you 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 mentioned a lot of things that some people uh, find it difficult to accept or may um, mm-hmm. need their minds opened to. Um, and, and grounding in, uh, I think you've said before, allows us to sort of um, maybe be a little more receptive to that and think about it as opposed to just reacting to it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what I want to talk about today is, uh, the legal professions diversity problem. We have one. It's not, it's not really a question. Um, women are underrepresented. Minorities are underrepresented. And, and some of the answers to how that comes about are really simple and the solutions are really not. Um, but one of the things that doesn't feel all that simple to me is in, in the world of small firms, which is which is most of our audience, most of our listeners, most of most small firms, many small firms anyway, solo practitioners in particular, only get a few chances to make a hiring decision or to mentor a law student or something like that 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 would have a real direct impact on diversity. And so I'm interested in talking about, and, and, and you're likely to hire somebody who you automatically trust and know, and maybe you've even ta- been talking with them about this for years. And so uh, what I'm interested in talking about is how, how can people who have so few opportunities to, to directly impact diversity in the profession, how can we make a difference? Um, I know I've just asked a really big question, but feel free to back no, up and, right. and, and uh, lay a foundation if you need to. Sure. And I, I think... I would begin my response to that question, and I, I get that question a lot in trainings. Everyone mm-hmm. in our in our consulting group fields that question at some point, and the typical response is that it's actually the wrong question to ask, um, not because people aren't, quote-unquote, doing it right, et cetera, but because we have, for a few decades now, in the era of uh, this kind of general, very vague narrative of diversity, uh, we have misunderstood the nature of the problem, and therefore we misunderstand the nature of the solution. Mm-hmm. So I will back up just a little bit. Um, and uh, in the presentation, I don't know if you remember this, but we typically have a PowerPoint slide up where there's three vertical columns. And the column on the left is diversity. The column in the middle is cultural competency. And the column on the right is social justice slash equity. Mm-hmm. And and we usually give this as a very intro framework because this in and of itself helps clarify the answer to your question and that diversity work historically has really only been about achieving appreciation and, and, and kind of evaluation of difference. And so you become aware of difference and you learn how to appreciate that difference. And that typically has been the only function of diversity training, diversity programs, diversity initiatives, et cetera. It seems like they should have a broader reach and more depth. But in point of fact, when you look at the literature and you look at it in action, diversity initiatives and diversity offices have historically only been able to put forth initiatives that are about developing a greater awareness and an appreciation of difference. That's not bad, but that's not the solution to why are there not enough people of color and cisgender or trans women in the legal profession. Like right. Diversity just does not have the capacity to answer that question. If, if the questions about identity and representation in your profession are an ocean's worth of questions, then diversity is just a shallow, small bowl, and it really doesn't have the capacity to do that work. Similarly, cultural competency, which is a slightly more recent term, 
um, is very important because it's about developing skills across cultural lines, and that's incredibly valuable. Uh, but that, too, does not look at the big-ticket items that help us achieve racial equity in law firms, gender equity in law firms. And so the problem with both diversity and cultural competency is that they are good for what they're good for, awareness and appreciation and skill development across cultural lines, but they do not look at systems and structures and access to resources. And that ultimately is what mediates the presence of Native people, people of color, cisgender and trans women in the legal profession. It's not a lack of awareness and appreciation. It's not a lack of cross-cultural skills. It is something far more complex and profound than that, which is the way that the legal system and the legal structure has operated historically and currently and how that operation mediates people's access to resources. And so the right-hand column, equity and social justice, that is the column that explicitly and exclusively addresses systems, structures, history, and access to resources. And so to kind of pull back from that slide a bit, if you were to go to the left-hand column of diversity, if that was your compass, then a firm, whether it's a solo small firm or a large, large firm in the Twin Cities where I live, you know, what you would do, your strategy would be to get more people of color into your firm. Mm -hmm. And we call those poll questions. The problem is, if you haven't changed anything about your firm with respect to race, then you're going to get people of color and Native people into your firm, but you will not be able to retain Native people and people of color in your firm because your business as usual is business as usual. So you just touched on something that was I, I, I encountered in a, in a completely different context, um, but it was about diversity. And, and the point, I think it was a Harvard Business Review maybe, and they were pointing out that um, yeah, you can you can do diversity. You can get more people of color, more women, more um, more trans people, whatever, into your your company. But if they don't feel welcome there, they're not going to stick around. You can't retain them. That's exactly and, right. And making them feel welcome is is not a matter of doing diversity. It's a matter of sort of um, changing the lens through which you view your your company, your activities, your relationships, your communications. Um, I think I think that's right, isn't it? Everything. Yep, that's exactly right. And so, unfortunately, um, you can't really throw a stick without hitting diversity trainers. Mm -hmm. And the reason most firms <laughs> and other organizations like diversity trainers is because they don't, in fact, challenge the status quo. You get to check off the list that you've done this year's diversity training or this quarter's diversity training, but nothing actually changes. So the people that have historically benefited from the way business as usual operates get to continue to benefit from how that operates, and you simultaneously get to check off your list that you've done your diversity work. So it's a very seductive strategy because... It's easy on the folks that have always had it easy. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that white people haven't had to work hard in law school and work hard in your career. I know a lot of folks who are, you know, new lawyers in the field and they work extraordinary hours. But that's simply to say that you can work extraordinary hours. And if you have a lot of dominant identities like white or cisgender male or professional middle class, you can be reasonably well assured that that work will pay off into a promotion. Whereas Native people and people of color, for example, work their tails off just as well, but might be seen as folks who aren't quite quote unquote team players. They might not have a good, they might not be a good fit for the firm, et cetera, et cetera. Or those folks themselves will say, this firm is a pretty toxic place around issues of race. And if I hear someone call me boy one more time, I'm going to lose it. And so, or if someone tells me as a black man that I'm very articulate for a black man, I think I'm going to blow my top. <laughs> and so they leave, they leave. And so my point in kind of giving this big picture three column framework is that diversity work is profoundly ineffective. It is about the focus is to get more people of color, Native people or women or trans folks into your firm, and that does not result in change. 
And so the fundamental answer to your question is to actually not do diversity work and not even worry about hiring more people of color, Native people in the field, and instead move to the right-hand side of this image that I'm trying to construct and do equity and social justice work, meaning a solo small law firm or a huge law firm that takes up 10 floors in a major office building in downtown, they would begin to explicitly and and consistently over the long term address issues of equity and social justice in their business as usual. And so that focus in our consulting firm, we call that addressing the push question. So don't ask the poll question, how do we get more people of color in our firm? Ask the push question, what is it about our firm that makes it impossible for people of color to come and stay? Why are people of color not making partner in our firm? What is it that we do and have been doing that makes that impossible? In other words, what do we do that pushes out Native people and people of color? Let's take a pause on that provocative note. Uh, We need to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to pick up right where we left off. So you're racing against the clock to wrap up three client projects, prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to Modern Life as a Small Firm Lawyer. The working world has changed. With the growth of the internet, there's never been more opportunities for the self-employed. To meet this need, FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. The all-new FreshBooks is not only ridiculously easy to use, it's also packed full of powerful features. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds, set up online payments with just a couple of clicks, and get paid up to four days faster. See when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to the guessing games. FreshBook is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone, which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. You're investing time and money to grow your law firm, but what if you could make all of your marketing and business development work better? Spotlight Branding works exclusively with solo and small law firms. They create the internet foundation for their clients, which increases the return on their marketing investment by 2x, 5x, or more. Whether you develop business primarily through networking and referrals, by running ads on the radio or on the internet, or whatever the case may be, Spotlight Branding can create an internet presence for your law firm, which will make all of your marketing work better. Spotlight Branding services include law firm website design, email newsletter management, social media marketing, and more, all designed to help your law practice generate a higher return on the time and the money that you're investing into your marketing. Visit spotlightbranding.com lawyerist to see how they can help your firm stand out from the crowd and make 2017 your most profitable year ever. Okay, and we're back, and you uh, you just distinguished between push and pull and started talking about that, uh, and, and if I can maybe... Uh, sum that up in a way that uh, that maybe makes more sense to me. It's, uh, it's well, makes different sense to me. It, it's, the question is not how do, you, how do you hire more people of color, for example. It's how do you get more people of color applying and make sure that they have an even shake at the application process and make sure that they're going to feel welcome once they're in your firm and succeed and rise to the highest levels just as any, but any white man can do, right? It's close. There's a bit more to that. Yeah, Rather than just saying, how do we um, make it such that people of color can apply and be successful? Because the focus is still on, quote unquote, those people. The hardest, hardest focus and the most effective focus in the long run is to say, what is it about our firm that tends to favor white people? 
What is it about our communication style? What is it about the, the promotion expectations? What is it about the nature of work, et cetera, et cetera? In other words, what is it about our environment that not only is unwelcoming to people of color in terms of what we think about people of color, but is unwelcoming to people of color because we keep whiteness at the center? How do we do and that? You mentioned earlier, How do we figure that out? Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty intense. Because I, I am a white dude. That's, that's how I see the world. Right, right. And this is why many organizations don't actually want to do social justice work, because if you can imagine, this is hard and engenders extraordinary resistance and frustration and anger and fear and all kinds of stuff. And so the way that you do that is you begin, let's take race, for example. You begin by learning about the history of the creation of race, what racial categories actually are, where they came from, what they mean. And I would recommend Ian Haney Lopez's White by Law, um, where he talks about how the Supreme Court, in a very particular set of about half a dozen decisions, explicitly protected what it means to be white in the United States. And they did that by continuing to change their reasoning, their legal arguments, their definition of white, et cetera, uh, because there was a reason to protect what it meant to be white. And in that case, um, uh, Ian Henny Lopez is talking mostly about citizenship and all the things that come from that. But it's a brilliant book because as a, as a, a legal scholar, he's talking about the way that the legal system is deeply, deeply inculcated in this reality of the creation of race and the story behind race. And now, well, let me stop you for a second and say, are we talking about intentional racism? Like, are we, are we ascribing racist intent to the Supreme Court in making some or all of those decisions? Or are we saying that whether or not they intended them to be racist, they had the effect yeah, it's great. of consolidating the position? And, you know, as he goes through and he looks at... Um, the decisions and the arguments and the justification, you'll actually see both. Mm -hmm. You'll see people who, who really felt that the safety of this country was dependent upon white people remaining in positions of power. And so you'll see justices who articulated that as well as lawyers who articulated that. But you'll also see white folks who were really just trapped in the story of their time and felt like they were adjudicating in good faith and really felt like they weren't adjudicating from a particular racial lens, and yet were, not because they're bad folks or not because they had any intent, but because they were simply reflecting and mirroring the racial realities and the racial understandings of their time. And, and, let's, and so we've made a lot of progress, right? So, so it kind of feels like, but, you know, I know better than to, um, than to think that it's simply fair for us to have coloreds-only bathrooms and stuff. And, and now it feels like the, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this loaded word out there because we talked about it at the seminar and I, I kind of want you to unload it a little bit, mm -hmm. um, but this idea of microaggressions, right? I, we've come a long way on diversity, but we, we haven't gotten to the goal yet. And, and part of what's left to knock down are these sort of smaller, less overt um, things that we do. I think, mm. and and you've you've used the word microaggressions, and and that word has gotten a lot of bad rap, and people really hate it. And so, but I think it's a useful word with real meaning, and so I'd like to you to explain kind of what that really means. Sure. Um, well, there's there's three points kind of floating here, so let me let me finish one, and then yeah. we'll come back to the other two about microaggressions and the idea that it's gotten better now. And so earlier you asked a question as we start to look at the interior and business as usual of a firm, you asked, well, how do you do that? And you do that by understanding the ways that history and systems have informed the contemporary lens around race or gender or class or disability. And that requires education, that requires commitment, it requires time um, in order to really come to understand the ways that um, dominant identities around race or gender or class have entrenched themselves, almost become calcified within the structures of any firm or pick an organization in this country, whether it's higher ed or the nonprofit sector or medicine, et cetera. And so the answer to that question of how do we do that is that it requires a study of identity and systems and history and the way that they have constructed what dominant group members come to see as their normal, quote-unquote, lens and the ways that things have, quote-unquote, always been. 
and begin to really interrogate that, really begin to look at communication styles and expectations around work and so on. And then when a firm begins to do that, the work of the right column, the social justice equity column, you by default create a space that will attract Native people and people of color. So you actually won't even have to do much work to get people of color and Native people to apply to your firm because you will have already established a record of being committed and concerned about those issues. Mm-hmm. And so the diversity element, how do you get more race or gender or class diversity into a firm, that is a default byproduct of doing good equity and social justice work. So if you do the work, then by default, you will attract historically marginalized communities, and they will come and stay at your firm. And so, um, to tie into your other two questions, uh, what, you know, we'll use race again, what Native people and people of color typically experience at law firms is less the overt, explicit racism, and quite often what the literature calls microaggressions, but what our firm, we don't actually use that term, we use the term everyday racism. Because there's the kind of large explosive examples of racism that we've seen acutely over the last few years in this country. Um, and then there's just the kind of interstitial tissue of racism that connects those big explosive moments, which is just the everyday slights and indignities and assumptions and comments and, and, and. And so it's that, uh, which creates hostile environments in certain workplaces. And so, we don't use the term microaggressions, not because we're trying to be PC, but it just doesn't, it doesn't actually resonate well, and it certainly doesn't speak to the gravity of the effects of everyday racism. And so, um, one of the leading factors for why historically marginalized people leave firms is that everyday sexism, everyday racism, everyday classism. Now, to speak to your last point, and then I'll I'll pause, Mm -hmm. is there is profound question as to whether things have gotten better or not. And so you can see that Brown v. Board, uh, was it May 14th, 17th, 1954, I think, um, said we have to desegregate schools. But U.S. public schools are as racially segregated now as they were in 1968, which is bad. Yeah. Because most of the southern states did not begin full integration until 1968 mid-60s. It had been a decade for sure in Alabama, for example, before you started to see any earnest movement toward broad-based desegregation. And so U.S. public schools now are wildly racially segregated. And if you segregate education, you will then by default begin to segregate employment. And that then circles back to segregated housing, et cetera. And so another book I would recommend your listeners check out is Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, which uh, she's not being hyperbolic there. She's looking at the prison industrial complex and the criminal justice system. And for the last 33 years, since October of 1982, when Reagan formally declared a war on drugs, the impact that that has had on black and brown communities, and particularly the level of disenfranchisement that has afforded black men in the United States. And so when you look at the statistics and you look at the racial realities, what you don't have anymore is a de jour kind of structural racism to the extent that we did 50 and 60 years ago. But the de facto structural racism is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And so you find communities of color across this country utterly decimated by the war on drugs. And so I strongly, strongly recommend anyone who has anything to do with the legal profession to read Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. came out in 2010. And it would be wonderful to think that the statistics have improved since then, but they have not. And so the reason I'm mentioning that is because it speaks to the question of have things gotten better? And certainly we've had a a man who gets raced as a black man as president. And so on some level, you know, kind of the de jure aspects have. But the de facto realities for communities of color today um, are just extraordinarily, extraordinarily problematic. And and many would say things have not gotten better because it's harder to organize and create change when the system seems to say that everybody has equal access to education. But the on-the-ground the on reality, the subjective reality, if you will, shows something that is completely 
contrary to that. It, it almost sounds like um, going back to your three columns of diversity, cultural competency, and social justice and equality, um, that we, we used to have, um, instead of diversity, we used to have uh, racism. And uh, we've done diversity, um, and so so overt that that those some of those overt markers of racism have gone down. We we really haven't addressed the social equality. So that, so what's replaced that overt inequality? What's replaced that overt racism is uh, sort of a a flying under the radar social inequality that makes it the same effect, but it, you don't see the. Uh, um, you know, this is the elementary school for colored kids, and this is the elementary school for the white mm-hmm. kids, um, which is discouraging. That's right. <laughs> super discouraging. <laughs> well, it is discouraging on the one hand. On the other hand, um, it it helped us understand that structural change alone is insufficient. And so Michelle Alexander was faculty at um, the Ohio State University's Law School, and she just recently went to Union Theological. And the reason for that is because you recognize that you can't actually uh, make structural change, like changing the laws, uh, changing the, the judicial system, if you will, how the system itself works. You can't make those changes and hope that they have teeth without having a kind of moral or conscientious or internal change in the populace as well. And so we saw you know, Civil Rights Voting Rights Act, and we saw extraordinary um, litigation come down the pike and legal changes. That did not actually change this nation's understanding of race. And in fact, created areas where this nation actually could um, make its understanding of race even more extreme in some ways than it was before. And so it's hard in, in this podcast to kind of do justice to what she and other people articulate. Another good book would be Mark Lamont Hill's Nobody, uh, where he talks in a number of ways about the aspects of the criminal justice system that continue to fuel racial disparities in the United States, but not just racial disparities, but also the impacts on poor working class white communities as well. Um, and so I, I really recommend that those, particularly people who are white or cisgender male or, you know, owning class, I recommend that uh, we take a peek at how these systems are actually operating. And just because the de jour has been changed does not mean the de facto has changed. Another book that might be useful is Tim Wise's Under the Affluence, where he really takes a hard look at um, the economic structures of this country and their connection to racial dynamics. And that came out last year, I think, under the affluence. Hmm. And so, I mean, you've expanded my uh, the view a little bit. And I guess uh, working at a law firm is at the, the very distant tail end of something that starts, you know, a, a process, a, a pipeline that, that starts before birth, uh, really. In, in order to get somebody into that pipeline, the chances are good that they're going to be raised in a um, by parents who are have relatively steady situations, uh, who value education, who are able to pay for education, or who are eligible for scholarships, um, who teach serious study, um, or you know, uh, and and then you and you get through the system and you feel some entitlement or some ability to work hard towards those goals, and that'll be rewarded if you do. And it's um, so. So what you're saying is really, if I'm a firm of three white guys, um, we can still foster diversity in a system like that, even if what we're not doing is just trying to hire, um, you know, I, I hate to say quotas, but I mean, that's what it often boils down to when you're trying to do diversity is quotas, right? Right. So you, we can still, we can still do it by focusing on, on learning, um, and, and trying to change, um, the situation at our, at our own firm, uh, the way we're welcoming to clients and employees, but also, um, potentially working through law schools, maybe, and um, and elementary schools, and and trying to increase social equality across the board and throughout the pipeline. That's exactly right. And so the hiring is really the last question yeah. you need to ask. The first set of questions is how can we, as a firm, work in pro bono ways or in other educational ways, like like you said, giving talks in elementary school, et cetera. How can we engage um, the systems? that lead to this inequity. And as you do that, 
as you commit as a firm to addressing systemic racism, what will happen is you will see that you'll start to build collaborations with firms uh, that have perhaps more people of color in them. You'll start to work with community groups that are led of by and for people of color. You'll start to have different conversations in your legal circles. You'll be asked to participate in different ways um, as people who are committed to racial equity and racial justice, even if you don't have Native people and people of color working in your firm. And so the real issue is to challenge the systems and structures that have one of their many inevitable results be lack of representation of people of color. And please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying don't hire people of color. Definitely hire people (laughs) of color. But what I'm saying is please don't confuse that for the mountaintop. That is not the answer. The answer is to fundamentally transform these systems. And so I'm white. I'm super white. Like I... My family has been white in this country for a very long time. They're British and German. You know, we, we, we're very white in the cultural, um, dimensions of how we are, um, in the assumptions that are made, in the levels of entitlement and opportunities has a very, um, very, uh, white grounded history, if you will. And so I was socialized in that way. But I understand as well, and it's taken many years to get here, that I actually will not live in a nation that is going to be who we say we are unless I, as a white person, explicitly and intentionally commit myself to racial justice and racial equity work, not to go save anyone else, but to save myself in a way, to 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 commit myself um, to the process of creating the nation and the society and the community and the group of people in my life that I actually want it to be. Because white people lose at the hands of racism, too. Mm -hmm. Not nearly to the extent that Native people and people of color do, but white people's lives are limited and reduced and have um, lost quite a bit at the hands of living only around white people and only ever working with white people. And so everybody loses when these systems are in place. And we all stand to gain substantially by dismantling the systems. And as you do, you will find that your firm or other small firms or large firms will begin to engage in much more thoughtful and meaningful and effective ways around issues of race and with communities of color. So there's so much more I want to talk about, but this is a podcast, and 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 uh, you know I I know that when you when I uh, attended your training, it was a half day, um, and it was probably a full day crammed into a half day, and I know we can only cram so much more into the ten or so minutes remaining to us, and so if we can, I'd like to touch on two things. Um, sure. The the last thing I want to talk about is I want to wrap up with okay, so what do we do after we turn off this podcast? Um, and yeah. and you sort of walked through like okay, if you've woken up as a result of this podcast and you're inspired to try and do something, what are next steps? And I, I think uh, sure. you started with, uh, you know, start reading, but don't talk to anybody else about what you're reading for a while because you you don't you don't really appreciate it or get it or you're going to be annoying first and you're not gonna, people aren't going to be receptive. So, so I'd like to end with that. But before we get to that, we have a, we have a political climate that, that right now that is toxic to, um, in many ways, uh, talking about social justice and bandies about political correctness like a cudgel, and um, and, and as a white man, uh, I, I, I part of me recognizes where this is coming from, uh, because sometimes the public rhetoric feels like it's beating up on men, on white people, on however you are categorized. It can sometimes feel like when other people are pushing for equality it's actually sort of coming on your shoulders and, and people, it, it sounds sometimes, it feels sometimes like the message being delivered is you are bad for being who you can't help being. And I wonder if maybe you've got some insight into how, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a fairly enlightened, uh, you know, liberal guy and I, and I can talk to, I can say to myself, well, I mean, recognize that you've got some privilege, Sam, and other people don't have it. And uh, but I, but what are the, t- like, what, what, how should we think about that when we are feeling under threat um, from the push towards more social equality and diversity? Because sometimes it's a little hard to see that big picture. Sure. Um, and so a couple quick things. One is the tendency for members of dominant groups, whether it's race or class or gender, is to, to feel guilty or ashamed or blamed, et cetera. And I get that. I get that feeling. I certainly went through that process um, and almost stage, if you will, as a white person. 
Uh, and so what we recommend is instead of feeling guilty, shamed, and blameful, we recommend dominant group members start to operate a disposition of curiosity, grief, and humility. So the first move is to pay attention to my disposition. Am I just gearing up instantly for feeling guilty and shamed and blamed and therefore I'm going to attack back? Or am I working to cultivate a disposition of curiosity, grief, and humility? So I had a number of white students in the university classes I taught in Minnesota who did not know that there was such a thing as Japanese internment. So when I taught them about it, they were horrified and started to get all guilty and shamey. And I said, whoa, 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 hold on a minute. Instead of going there, why don't you get curious about why you didn't know this? How is it that the Minnesota standards didn't seem to think that that was important? Who set those standards? Did they have a particular agenda? Did they think some things were more valuable than others and why? And so we just encourage curiosity and critical inquiry rather than guilt, shame, and blame. The second disposition is grief. And so instead of feeling blameful um, about, you know, the colonization and genocide that happened to Native people, instead of feeling blamed for that, I just feel extraordinary grief. Like, where is my humanity in that? And so when women are telling men, this is the reality around rape and sexual assault, instead of saying, well, I'm not one of those guys, what would happen if men responded with extraordinary empathy and actually felt, what is that like? What is it like to walk down the street and never feel safe? Most most cisgender heterosexual men, that doesn't even cross their mind unless they're in a quote-unquote a dangerous neighborhood. But for women who have survived sexual assault, that is just a daily reality often. And so instead of defending or, you know, getting guilty and shameful, what happens if I allow myself an empathetic disposition and feel the grief around that? Like, what an incredible loss. What a waste of energy and time for women to have to even deal with that. And the last disposition is humility and really to say, I don't know. And I, I encounter an extraordinary number of white people who proffer very strident positions around issues of race. And when I ask them for their references, they have none. Mm-hmm. And that's mostly because they don't know what they're talking about. They have an opinion, but I could have an opinion that the world is flat because when I walk outside, it looks flat to me. And so I could opine the flatness of the world ad nauseum. But that doesn't mean it's true. And so what we want to do is stop kind of bantering about in the realm of my emotional reactions or opinions and really start to look at the systems and structures and history and how, what the truth is, how it's played out. So the first response to your question is disposition. And so I prefer to support people in being curious, really feeling through empathy what another person is going through and to have enough humility to say, I actually don't know. I've never studied it, never read it, don't know anything about it. Teach me. The second main piece is that when people who are marginalized, women or poor working class people or people of color start calling out systems and realities, instead of feeling like it's an attack to me as a white person, for example, around race, I start to understand it as a diagnosis of what's wrong. And so if I have some stomach problems and I go to the doctor and I say, yeah, I got this stuff and we do a bevy of tests, I don't want them to come back and say, you got some tummy problems. I want a really explicit diagnosis because tummy problem could mean third stage stomach cancer or indigestion. Like I need something specific as a diagnosis so I can marshal my resources to really take care of the problem. And so oftentimes Native people and people of color, let's say around issues of race, are giving a cogent and very specific diagnosis of what's going on. But because white people don't have a knowledge of systems and history, our only recourse is to take it personally and feel like, oh, you're attacking me. But in point of fact, they're naming the system. They're talking about a long history of how this has played out and naming yet one more example of that history and those systems. And so if I start to understand it as a diagnosis, it allows me to not take it as personally. And so the second major point is see it as a diagnosis and not a personal attack. And the third thing that I find interesting and important with respect to your question about how do we open ourselves to hear this and have this conversation is to recognize that most of the guilt, shame, and blame directed to me has not come from people of color, if it's race, for example. It's actually come from other white people. So when I would teach my classes in the fall semester, I had 97% white students in my classes at St. Cloud State University of Minnesota. And 
we would cover issues of race and history, and then they would go home for Thanksgiving, and they would sit at the dinner table and start bringing these issues up with their family, and their white families would be like, what? This is horrible, blah, 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 and all kinds of fights and arguments would ensue, and they'd get relegated to the card table with their four-year-old nieces and nephews, and they'd start to tell them about this history, you know, did you know, blah, 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 blah. And they'd come back, and, you know, the few students of color would come back as well, and I would say, well, how did it go? How did these conversations go? And it was only ever the white students who said, my family told me I ruined dinner, or I disrupted, or I... But it was never people of color who said, yeah, I brought up race, and my family said I ruined dinner. (laughs) It was never the folks who were targeted by it. It was always the folks who benefited from the system of oppression who really didn't want to hear it. And so one of the things that's important to recognize is that when we look at who's guilting and shaming men or who's guilting and shaming white people, it's often other white people. Hmm. You know, I, I don't shame men for being feminist, but I know other men who shame men for being feminist and say, what are you, a homo and blah, 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 and all the homophobic epithets come out. And so it's other men who police men's behavior. And if it's too feminine or too feminist, they will come down on those men. And it's other white people who police white people's behavior. And so I think the third major piece is to recognize where is this guilt and shame actually coming from? And who's laying this guilt trip on me? And rarely does it come from the targeted group of people. Often it comes from fellow dominant group members who don't want me stepping outside of the fold. And so in this particular political climate, um, we need to sharpen our disposition and and kind of work to make ourselves more open to these conversations, recognize this as a diagnosis and not a personal attack, and really start to question where where is this coming from? Who is actually proffering shame on you for talking about issues of race? And it's not other people of color, it's white people putting that forward in our national conversation as well as conversations in our community. So a little bit of um, sort of positive self-talk around, you know, don't, don't be defensive. Think about it in this way can go, uh, can be helpful. Yeah. And again, when I'm educated around systems and history, when native people and people of color are expressing outrage toward me, I don't take it personally mm-hmm. because I understand this is a long history. When you have the big picture, it's not about that. you. It's just obviously not about right. you. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so for people who are still listening and receptive and, and want to learn and, and do something, right? Because we all want to do something when we learn something new. Um, what should they do next? What's the process to starting to work on social equality? Yeah, I think the, the, the three steps that we offer folks in our training are we talk about learning, integration, and implementation. And so many times, um, white folks, for example, will read the new Jim Crow, um, and they will say, this is horrible. I'm going to rush out and do something. But they don't actually know what to do yet because mm-hmm. they're not quite skilled or well-versed enough. And so they end up making a lot of mistakes. It's very similar to having a 300-page book on plumbing. You read the first 20. You think, you know what? I got this. And you start replumbing your whole house. Like, that's just a bad idea. You should probably finish the book. <laughs> you should probably apprentice a little bit to, to get a handle on what plumbing action really looks like in real life. And then maybe you should replumb your house. And so the process is to learn but before you rush out and do something, like at least finish the book. And then the second step is to integrate it, meaning start to look at my own life and what ways do I act out of these racial stereotypes or in what ways um, do I make assumptions about class? And in what ways am I totally oblivious to disability issues in my own life? And what do I need to pay more attention to? And how can I actually live this way before I go try to do this? And then the third step is implementation. So it's learn, live, do is kind of the basic three-step process. And so anyone who's interested in learning more about these issues should get some resources from a social justice perspective, of course, um, and begin to to take that content in in an integrated way. Like, and so how am I going to talk about this with other people in my life? What questions do I have? What Am I overwhelmed? What other resources do I need, et cetera, et cetera? And then after some period of integration, of beginning to shift to the way I live, then I stand a much better chance of being effective in doing something about it. 
So it's the learn, live, do, and then you will make some inevitable mistakes. I make mistakes all the time. And so you cycle back to learning even more, integrating even more, doing even more. So it's an ongoing loop, if you will, of learn, integration, and implementation. Awesome. Uh, Heather, thank you so much for being with us today and for (laughs) taking extra time and for tolerating me as I tried to interrupt and derail you. Um, It was really wonderful to have you on the podcast. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you. Make sure to catch next week's episode of the Lawyerist podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast or legaltalknetwork.com. You can subscribe via iTunes or anywhere podcasts are found. Both Lawyerist and the Legal Talk Network can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play or iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said during this podcast is legal advice.